Why don't we go ahead and turn again to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to read this section on the Beatitudes again. And then I believe when I'm done reading, I'll ask uh, Russell No if you would pray for us before we um, begin to look into the Word here. But we'll begin by reading uh, Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Well, we've been considering now for the past few messages this Sermon on the Mount, and um, the first message that I gave, I uh, brought out what I believe is the main theme of Christ's uh, sermon here, and that is the Sermon on the Mount is about life in the kingdom of heaven. And under that main theme, I brought out two principles, and the first is that the Beatitudes are descriptions of the character of a Christian. The Beatitudes are not a list of rules we must keep, but rather they are a description of the character of the citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And, of course, that will apply to what we're going to look at here in just a little bit. Um, And then the second principle was that the life of the citizen of the kingdom of heaven must be a righteous life, and that is seen throughout the entire Sermon on the Mount. And then last time we looked into this section, um, we considered the first beatitude there in verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And we looked at how this poverty of spirit describes a person who sees that they are spiritually bankrupt. That's what the idea of this poverty is, bankrupt. Um, They have nothing to offer for their own salvation, but are instead completely dependent on God for mercy and for grace. So poverty of spirit could be described this way, complete emptying of self and complete reliance upon God. And so that brings us then to verse 4, which is what I would like to spend our time this morning looking at. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. So one of the first things that stands out in this beatitude is how much this goes against the mindset of the world. And really, 
the, all of the Beatitudes are this way. And one of the commentaries that I'm reading on the Sermon on the Mount is titled Christian Counterculture, which implies that the Christian is going against the culture. And throughout the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is teaching something that is completely opposite of the way that the natural man thinks and the way that the world operates And that contrast is particularly obvious here in this beatitude in verse 4. The one thing that the world avoids at all costs is this idea of grief and mourning. There are whole industries geared towards keeping your mind off of the things that would make you sad. And of course, the entertainment industry leads the way in this. No one wakes up in the morning feeling sad and thinks, this is going to be a good day. It's just the opposite. If you wake up sad, you think, this is going to be a hard day. But what does Jesus say here? Blessed are those who mourn. Or as it can be translated, and we talked about this last week, happy are those who mourn. That is completely contrary to what the world thinks. So what does Jesus mean here when he says, blessed are those who mourn? Well, once again, it's helpful in seeking to understand this beatitude to identify what it is not saying. And Jesus is not commending sadness and mourning over loss. There is no eternal blessing from earthly sorrow. In thinking about this beatitude, some might think of the verse in Psalm 34:18, where the psalmist says this, The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Now, that psalm does apply to this beatitude, but not in the general sense that it is typically thought of. The brokenhearted and crushed in spirit referenced in Psalm 34 is not referring to someone who lost everything in a market crash. Or it's not even referring to someone who has lost a loved one. Now, I believe that the compassionate heart of the Lord is stirred at the suffering and grief that is experienced in the world, even among the lost. God's heart is not indifferent towards that. We see that in the life of Jesus, that he was, and this is in quotes, moved with compassion. It says that in Matthew 20 and in Mark chapter 1, moved with compassion. And then you also see that in Jesus as he wept along with the mourners when Lazarus died. Jesus wasn't weeping because of the loss of Lazarus. He was about to raise Lazarus from the dead. So he wasn't weeping because Lazarus had died. He was weeping because he felt something of the sorrow and the loss that Mary and Martha and the other mourners felt. In other words, he was entering into their grief. He was moved with compassion in that sense. But the special nearness in the salvation that is spoken of in Psalm 34:18 that I just read is directed towards a special or a particular type of grief. 
Sadness and mourning over loss, like the loss of a loved one, is beneficial to the extent that they cause us to consider our ways and turn to the Lord. And we see that in Ecclesiastes 7, verse 2, where Solomon says, It is better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting, because that is the end of every man, and the living takes it to heart. So the house of mourning is better than the house of feasting, which obviously that is counter-cultural. No one wants to go to a funeral. Everyone wants to go to a party. But Solomon is saying, and scripture is saying here, that it's better to go to the house of mourning because it forces us to face the fact that one day we're going to be the one in the casket. We're going to be the one who is standing face to face before the Lord. But Psalm 34, 18, and this beatitude here in verse 4, blessed are those who mourn, are not speaking about mourning and grief over loss, They are speaking of a particular type of mourning and brokenness. And that is they are speaking about mourning and brokenness over sin. Not loss, but mourning and brokenness over sin. John Stott says this, It is not the sorrow of bereavement to which Christ refers, but the sorrow of repentance. It is one thing to be spiritually poor and acknowledge it, It is another to grieve and to mourn over it. Well, in Psalm 34, 18, which I just read, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. In the margin there, it says that crushed can be interpreted as contrite. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are contrite in spirit. And of course, contrite or contrition means to feel sorrow over sin, remorse over sin. Isaiah 66, verse 2 says this But to this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. We actually looked at that last time, talking about poverty of spirit, but here it is again. Now we're talking about mourning, contrition. And this verse applies there. Humility and contrition. That's Isaiah 66. He who is humble and contrite of spirit. And then in Matthew 5 here, we have poverty of spirit and mourning. They're paired together. Both humility and contrition will always be present in true conversion. Contrition follows being poor in spirit. Or put another way, humility leads the way to repentance. Lloyd-Jones says this, Conviction must of necessity precede conversion. A real sense of sin must come before there can be a true joy of salvation. David in Psalm 51 there says this in verse 17, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. You know, last week, we, or last time rather that I spoke, I, we brought out how God shows grace to the humble. Well, in the same way, he does not despise the broken and the contrite heart. 
And we see that same thing in Isaiah 66. To this one I will look. Which one? To him who is humble and contrite of spirit. God takes notice of the one who is contrite. He takes notice of the one who has sorrow over their sin. Well, the mourning that is spoken of here in Matthew chapter 5, verse 4, is the recognition of our sin before a holy God. When we see our iniquities before the Lord and there is a Godward focus, it brings about true contrition, true repentance. And I'd like to have you turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Because I, w- I want to contrast this idea of true repentance with false repentance. Or as we'll see here in, in this section, um, godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. And I'll take just a little bit of time to, to look at this here. So 2 Corinthians chapter 7, and I'm going to begin reading... Um, I guess I'll begin reading in verse 5. For even when we came into Macedonia, our flesh had no rest, but we were afflicted on every side, conflicts without, fears within. But God, who comforts the depressed, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only for, or not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted in you, as he reported to us your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. For though I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that the letter caused you sorrow, though only for a while. I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance, for you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces death. For behold, what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow, has produced in you. What vindication of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what avenging of wrong. In everything you demonstrated yourselves to be innocent in the matter. And I particularly want to draw attention here to verse 10. That there is a sorrow that is according to the will of God that produces repentance leading to salvation. And there is a worldly sorrow that leads to death or produces death. So one leads to life, the other leads to death. So what's the difference between these two sorrows? Because the outcomes are polar opposite, life or death. So we need to make sure that we understand the difference. And to help us understand the difference, I want to uh, look at a few examples in Scripture where we see contrasting repentance or contrasting sorrow over sin. And the first is David's repentance versus Saul's repentance. 
and these are found, you don't have to turn to them, but they're found, um, David's sin with Bathsheba and repentance is in uh, 2 Samuel chapter 11 and 12, and then Saul's uh, sin and false repentance is found in 1 Samuel chapter 15. So just briefly retelling the story, you remember with David as king of Israel, his army goes out to battle and he stays behind and he sees a woman and lusts for her and ultimately calls her to his home and commits adultery with her and she becomes with child and when David finds out about it, he tries to get her husband to come back from the battle so that it will appear as though, you know, she is with child with her husband. But the husband refuses to go to his home, so David is forced in order to hide his sin. He actually has him murdered in battle by having the army pull away so that Uriah is killed. And then David marries the widow, and seemingly the sin is covered over. And then you have Saul here. Uh, God had given instruction to Saul to go and utterly destroy the Amalekites, to wipe them out completely, to spare nothing. So Saul gathers his army, and he goes off to fight against the Amalekites, and he does that. He, by God's help, they're able to destroy the Amalekites. However, they don't destroy everything. They hold some of it back, the best they keep back. And then, of course, uh, Nathan, the prophet, goes to David, and Solomon, the prophet, goes to Saul. And so what was the difference in their response to their sin? Because all I've talked about so far is their sin, but not their repentance. Well, when David was confronted by Nathan about his sin, initially, he, you know, Nathan tells him a story and David gets uh, you know, very passionate in the story and says the person that Nathan's talking about must pay restitution fourfold. But then Nathan points a finger right at him and says, you're the man. And when David realizes what God is saying to him through Nathan, David's response is this, I have sinned against the Lord. David humbled himself and acknowledged his sin. No excusing his sin, no blaming others for his sin, just a humble acknowledgement of his sin. Then also David saw his sin as being against the Lord. And that's what I mean by a Godward focus. You see that in, in his psalm of repentance, which we already read, verse 17 from Psalm 51. But in verse 4 of that same psalm, David says this, Against you, you only, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight. David recognized that his sin was against God. Now, David sinned against many others. He sinned against Bathsheba. He sinned against Uriah. He sinned against his family. He sinned against the entire nation of Israel, but he sees his sin as being primarily against God. This is key to godly sorrow. Godly sorrow's focus is towards God. The focus is there. I see what I've done against God, and I am grieved about my sin before the Lord. Well, that's... That's true repentance. That's godly sorrow. But what about this worldly sorrow? Well, Saul. 
Saul's sin and false repentance, like I said, is found in 1 Samuel 15. And I'm just going to turn there because I'm going to be referencing some of the things that Saul says. So if you want to turn there, you can, but you don't have to. So Samuel comes to him and confronts him and basically says, you know, why did you not obey the voice of the Lord? When Saul is confronted with his sin, his first response, remember David's first response, acknowledging sin, taking ownership of it. Saul's first response, verse 13, uh, he says, I have carried out the command of the Lord. And then verse 20, uh, Saul says this, I did obey the voice of the Lord. So in other words, his first response is denial. He denies the sin and says, I did obey. I did what God wanted me to do. Well, then the second response, after denying the sin, he blame shifts. And you see that in verse 21. He says, but the people took some of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the choicest of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God. Notice how he says that, the people. That wasn't me. That was the people. I obeyed. The people did this. And then third, he excuses his sin. Verse 24, he, said, he, he finally is able to say, I've sinned, I've transgressed the command of the Lord and your words because I feared the people. So there's an excuse there. I feared the people. This is the king of Israel saying he feared the people. The king doesn't fear his men. The men fear the king. And he's saying, I did this because I feared the people. And that's an excuse of his sin. When he finally admits his sin in verse 30, it seems to me anyway that he's more concerned about his own reputation than he is about the sin. And you see that where he says, I have sinned, but please honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel. He's tacking this on. You know, I've sinned, but will you come with me and honor me before the people? I don't want to lose sight or lose my reputation in the sight of the people. So his focus was not Godward. He is more concerned about the consequences of his sin and grieved over those consequences than over the sin itself. Rather than being Godward focus, he had a self-focus, his reputation and the consequences he would face. So there is a really good example for us in Scripture contrasting this idea of godly sorrow versus worldly sorrow. But there's just one other one that I want to briefly consider. And it's a striking contrast that I really just thought about as I was studying through this one in Matthew 5. And that is the contrast we see in Scripture with Peter and Judas. And as you remember, on the night before the crucifixion of Jesus, Judas betrayed the Lord, and Peter denied the Lord three times. So we have similar sins. One is a betrayal, and one is a denial. Similar sins against the perfect, sinless Son of God. And we see from Scripture that both felt sorrow over their sin. It says of Peter... In Matthew 26, verse 75, he went out and wept bitterly. So there was definitely conviction and sorrow over his sin. 
And then it says of Judas that he felt remorse. So it's not that Judas was indifferent to what he had done. He felt remorse. He felt guilt over what he had done. But what about the difference here? Peter was restored and forgiven, and Judas went out and hung himself. And really, it was as I was reading in 2 Corinthians that this really stood out to me. And just think about Judas and Peter here as I reread this verse. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces death. That's played out quite literally with Peter and Judas. Peter's repentance was according to the will of God and produced repentance leading to salvation. And Judas's sorrow was of the world and led to death. But what was the difference for Peter and Judas? Now, this, this is a little bit hard to, to really understand because with David and with Saul, we see it so clearly in Scripture because we have a good narrative of what's going on in their lives and what they're saying. And definitely with David, you have an entire psalm of him pouring his heart out of what he's thinking, what he's feeling at that time. But with Peter and Judas, we don't have that as much. So these are just some observations that I have. Um, The first thing that stands out to me is this. Conviction of sin without faith leads to despair. But conviction of sin with faith leads to salvation. So conviction of sin without faith leads to despair, but with faith leads to salvation. And both felt conviction for their sin. Peter had been told by Jesus in Luke 22, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And you, when once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. So we know that Peter saw his sin as being against God. His focus was Godward. I mean, quite literally, his focus was Godward. It says that when Peter had denied the Lord, Jesus turned and Peter caught his gaze. They they saw each other and Peter remembered the words of the Lord and went out and wept bitterly. So he, like, physically, literally had eye contact with Jesus. But it's more than that. It's more than just physically seeing Jesus. Peter saw what he had done. He saw his sin as being against God. But he also, I, I think we can say this, he believed God resulting in salvation and restoration. What I mean by restoration is Peter was a believer before. Um, Jesus says that, you know, pray that uh, once you have turned again, in other words, he's going to fall. He's going to stumble in this way. Once you've turned again, strengthen your brother's. Well, Judas, on the other hand, felt the weight of his sin, but there was only despair. No looking to God in faith, no prayer of faith like the publican, God be merciful to me, the sinner. Instead, only despair, which ultimately led to his destruction. So those are just some observations here between Peter and Judas. But what about for us? 
We don't have personal promises from God spoken directly to us like Jesus did to Peter. But where is faith involved for us? Well, we may not have a personal word from God, but we do have all of the promises of God in Scripture, such as 1 John 1.9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So in summary here, true repentance or godly sorrow, as it says in 2 Corinthians, is marked by a Godward focus. And the Godward focus means that you see your sin as being against God, and there is a deep sorrow over that. But the Godward focus also means that through eyes of faith, that you, through your eyes of faith, that there is salvation in him. So it's more than just the feeling of sin, the guilt of sin, but looking to him, you see your salvation there. Well, back to Matthew 5. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. So what is the comfort that Jesus is speaking of in this beatitude? And I believe the comfort is forgiveness of sins, the forgiveness of sins. Psalm 130, verses 3 and 4 says this, If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. So this is the comfort. There is forgiveness with God. And what a comfort that is. If you have experience, and we've had some testimonies here just this morning, of different ones who have felt the weight of their sin, what a comfort it is when after feeling the weight of your sin, you sense something of the forgiveness of God for you. What a comfort. It makes me think of Spafford in his hymn. It is well with my soul. And he writes this, My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh my soul. Could there be a greater comfort for mourning over sin than to have your sins forgiven? To realize that you have this weight that you can never pay off. You can never pay this debt. And then for God to say, it's forgiven. You owe nothing. You are completely clean in my sight. What a joyous thing. What a comfort. And we see in the scriptures that this is what was foretold about Jesus' ministry of what he came to do. And... um, I want to just read to you, you can turn to it if you'd like, from Isaiah 61. And the reason I say this foretells about Jesus' ministry is that Jesus himself applies this very passage of scripture to himself. When he read this in the temple and then said, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So we we can say with confidence, this is talking about Jesus. Um, I'm just going to read the first three verses here of Isaiah 61. But think about what we've already been talking about, mourning over sin and the comfort that is found in forgiveness of sins. 
So Isaiah 61, verse 1, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, giving them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a spirit of fainting. So they will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. So what a contrast we see here. Jesus saying what he came to do. He came to bring liberty to captives, those bound in sin. He came to set them free. Freedom to prisoners. Again, freedom there. Um, To comfort those who mourn. That's exactly what he says there in Matthew uh, 5 verse 4. Those who mourn in Zion. But then again, think about these contrasts here. Ashes, the idea of mourning and ashes. Instead, he gives them a garland, a wreath, which is for rejoicing. The oil of gladness instead of mourning. A mantle of praise instead of a spirit of fainting. So this is what Jesus came to do. He came to save sinners. He came to bring forgiveness of sins to those who are mourning over their sin. Well, mourning over sin is a prerequisite to true conversion. There is no forgiveness of sin where there is no recognition and repentance of sin. You know, Jesus said, I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. In other words, the righteous, they don't think that they have any sin that needs to be repented of. He didn't come to save them. He also says, um, it is not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. In other words, if you are sick, spiritually sick, and recognize that, Jesus came to save you. But if you think you're well, spiritually well, I don't need a physician, there is no salvation for one who doesn't see that they need a physician. But every true Christian has seen something of their sin and has grieved over it and felt conviction. But I want to bring out just one thing in closing here. This is not just at conversion. It is true at conversion, especially at conversion, but it doesn't stop there. Even as followers of Christ, we still sin. But as we do sin, the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin, and there is a grieving over it. And as we mourn the sin, and as we confess the sin to the Lord, he forgives our sin and comforts us. And that's what we already looked at in 1 John 1.9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And I thought I would close with this Psalm um, 32, verses 1 through 5. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. 
One, I'm going to stop right there. This is basically a beatitude. Blessed are those who mourn. Here we're having, hearing blessed are those whose sin or whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Verse 2, how blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. Which, this reminds me of one of the testimonies we heard this morning. But verse 5, I acknowledged my sin to you, and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. So this is the comfort that Jesus brings to those who feel the weight of their sin, to those who mourn over sin. There is comfort. There is great comfort in this, forgiveness of sin, liberty, a a clean conscience to be able to walk knowing no longer am I under the wrath of God, but instead there is a, a spirit of grace and blessing upon me. I now have the smile of God upon me. But I want to close by just reading a few verses uh, of a a hymn that we sing. Uh, We don't have time to sing it this morning. But here we're talking about comfort. There is an immediate comfort that is felt for the Christian when they confess their sin to the Lord. Immediate sense of forgiveness of sin. But brethren, we will not understand this fully until heaven. We will not see the reality of the comfort in full measure until heaven. And that's where I believe this songwriter uh, particularly brings this out. This is when this passing world is done. And the refrain that keeps coming up in this song is, Not till then how much I owe. So I'm just going to read some of it. When this passing world is done, when has sunk yon glaring sun, when we stand with Christ in glory, looking over life's finished story, then, Lord, shall I fully know, not till then, how much I owe. When I hear the wicked call on the rocks and hills to fall, when I see them start and shrink on the fiery deluge brink, then, Lord, shall I fully know, not till then, how much I owe. When I stand before the throne, dressed in beauty, not my own, when I see thee as thou art, love thee with unsinning heart, then, Lord, shall I fully know, not till then, how much I owe. When the praise of heaven I hear, loud as thunders to the ear, Loud as many waters noise, sweet as harp's melodious voice. Then, Lord, shall I fully know, not till then, how much I owe. And I'm just going to read one more verse here. Even on earth, as through a glass, darkly let thy glory pass. Make forgiveness feel so sweet. Make thy spirit's help so meet. Even on earth, Lord, make me know something of how much I owe. So it's the reality that not until we get to heaven are we fully going to understand what we owe, what we've been forgiven. But then the prayer there in that last verse that I read, Lord, even here on earth, help me understand it a little more, something of how much I owe.
Well, amen. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you so much for the great forgiveness of sins that you offer to those who see their sin, to those who feel something of the weight of their sin, to those who, like the publican, cry out, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Lord, you have forgiveness ready to give. We thank you for that. We thank you for the blood of Jesus that cleanses us from all of our sins. Lord, we thank you for the testimonies that we've heard this morning of those who have felt something of the weight of their sin and have turned to you and that you have given forgiveness of sin and that here in a little bit we can go and witness them testifying to your goodness in their life and their commitment to walk with you as they uh, obey through baptism. Lord, we thank you for these things. Father, please help us to understand, as this songwriter says, Lord, something of how much we owe you. We thank you, Lord, for your great love for us. In Jesus' name, amen.